My name is Cher Champ, and um, I have the pleasure of introducing our speaker today, Dianette Mayer, affectionately known as Didi to her friends and family. I've known Didi for almost five years now. We share a suite of offices here, and it's given me an opportunity to get to know her in those years, to see her sometimes on a daily basis, to um, observe how she does life, and I can tell you, she is the real deal. What she says, what she professes with her mouth, what she says she believes in, she actually lives out. And I've watched it in the highs and lows of her life. And it has been a pleasure to know her. Some um, months ago, when I asked her if she would come and speak with us today, and she said yes, I told her, hey, I need to have some biographical information from you. And she dragged her feet. I couldn't get it out of her. And so one evening in the office, um, I walked into her office. And her husband, her husband Albert, who she's been married to for 14 years, um, they have three children together. Uh, the oldest is a daughter, Alexandra, who is 12 years old. And another daughter, Helena, who's 10. And a son, Christian, who's seven. Anyway, I walked into her office, and Albert was there, and I said, Hey, Dee, do you have that biographical information for me? And she's like, Oh, I don't like to write that stuff about myself. I don't like to focus on me. It's the hardest thing I have to do. I, mm, on and on. And her husband says, I'll write it. <laughs> and she and I both look at him, and he says, Yeah, I know exactly what I'm going to say. I'll say, She's one hot babe. <laughs> And I was trying to imagine that in the church bulletin. <laughs> One hot babe. <laughs> like, thank you, Albert. And by the way, Dee Dee, could you give me that bio? <laughs> I don't know how I can um, explain Dee Dee or define Dee Dee in a minute. But I, I'll give you some highlights about who she is and what she's about in more recent times. As I mentioned, she's a wife and she's a mom. She's also a mentor and a leader and a teacher for women's Bible study at Calvary Community um, Church. And that's the Proverbs 31 group that meets on Wednesday morning. She's also a licensed clinical social worker and has been in private practice for a number of years. She has been part of authoring a book, The Culture Wise Family, and also she has been a part of a radio program um, movie guide. Is that right? Movie guide. And she's done a lot of things, and she is a lot of things, but probably the, the overarching truth about her life, the thing that connects everything else, is that she is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That impacts her life in so many ways. And because of that, she has a passion for correctly and accurately teaching the Word of God, for correctly and accurately portraying God as he lets us know who he is out of Scripture, and for cutting the gospel message of salvation in a real clear way, accurately. And because of that passion, we're so lucky to have her here today that we're going to be able to sit under the teaching that she will be delivering to us. God to her, and then speaking through her 
to us. So it is my pleasure to introduce a wife, not mine, <laughs> a mom, a teacher, a mentor, a leader, a counselor, and a servant of the Most High God. And yes, one hot babe, <laughs> my friend Didi. Okay, so I can't live up to any of that, so you should all just go home. <laughs> you know, I'm just proof that God can use any old broken pot. And um, you're going to learn a little bit about that. Some of us clean up pretty nicely. Um, but it mean, means nothing about the internal condition of our hearts. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is all of you came in here hoping to get something out of today. And so what I'm going to ask is you throw all that out and you just trust that the Lord is going to guide and direct you know, one of the things I love about the Lord is he is so huge. You know, those songs, we're just looking about his majesty. And we're going to be talking about how huge he is. One of the funniest things is from the very beginning, I've been telling the ladies, God has had me everywhere in scripture. And it wasn't until this morning in my prayer time with him that he kind of identified why he had me everywhere in scripture. And, and our talks today, you know, it says a lot about you that you guys showed up for a conference on when you walk through the fire, a woman's guide to not getting burned. So I'm thinking a few of you in this room have gotten burned a couple times. Would that be right? Okay. He's basically said to me, it's all about perspective. And when you look at the entirety of Scripture, his word is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. And he says, I say the same, through, same thing throughout. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at how amazing he is and how he has planned a way for a real life in a real world. Some of us have bought into this idea that because we're believers, our life's supposed to be a little better. We've got that peace promise that surpasses all understanding. And we have books that tell us the best life ever, you know, and all these different ways that we can achieve it. And the reality is life is going to happen. There are things that are going to happen that are outside of our control. In fact, I believe God's word speaks completely to um, trials of life. So I'm going to open us up in prayer, and I'm just going to pray that God speaks mightily today. And um, we also have another conference called Love and Respect going on at Living Oaks that a girlfriend of mine is doing. And gosh, our marriages need some prayer. So I'm just going to open in prayer for that, and I'm just going to pray for this church. Thank you so much for having me here today. And um, it's just a great humbling experience to be asked to come and speak, and I know God's going to do great things. So let's just pray. Father God, I just thank you for being author and creator and perfecter of all things. And Lord, you give us faith. You are the creator and author of faith. And God, you promised to perfect it in us. And Lord, it is a process. Help us to learn our part in that process, Lord Jesus. And uh, Father God, I am just going to pray for that conference over at Living Oaks, Live and Respect. And Lord, that you would mightily work in our community and our marriages. Lord, that you would work in this room, in our hearts and in our lives and in our marriages and in our relationships. Father God, may we leave with a perspective that is more your perspective than the world's perspective, Father God. We love you and uh, we just thank you for the privilege of being your children. In your precious name, amen. Our verse today, the verse that I just felt like God had just laid on my heart, was from Isaiah 43, and it's verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be 
scorched, nor will the flame burn you. It's all about our perspective. A biggest part of our battlefield is our minds and our hearts. And we're going to be talking about that over and over and over again. We live in a world where we are consistently inundated daily. I'm going to tell you a little story. Um, last year I did a Bible study for my sixth grader. And we were going through First and Second Samuel because in sixth grade, I think, what better lessons than choices and con- consequences and juxtaposing David and Saul, somebody who did it right and had a heart for the Lord, still blew it, but had a heart for the Lord and somebody did it wrong. And then we ended in Romans. And as I was doing Romans, I thought, you know, I'm going to ask them to define some terms for me. And so I, I brought out a little board and I said, okay, what is a believer? What is salvation? What is sin? And I was flabbergasted. Every one of these kids is in a Christian school, including my daughter. They've grown up in the church. Every one of them gave me a workspace definition. When I asked what a believer was, and I even gave them some hints, I said, believer. (laughs) And they said, well, somebody who lives a good life. They follow the Ten Commandments. They love other people. I thought, no, 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 no. That's works. That's what we do. What is a believer? And they literally got themselves into a place where they had no idea. Now, these kids that grow in the church, they've heard this gospel message. And so we went down and we defined it by scripture. The very next week, I asked them the same questions. And guess what I got? What do you guys think I got? Workspace definitions. And so we did it again. Six weeks after playing games, creating these environments where I'm throwing at them, okay, what's a believer? Anytime I'd be in the middle of teaching, I'd say, and what's a believer? <laughs> Finally, after six weeks, they were giving me an accurate answer to what a believer was. And it rocked my world a little bit. Number one, it rocked me for how we're raising up our kids in the church. And it brought me back to that verse in Deuteronomy. Speak of these things when you walk, when you lie down, when you eat, when you sleep. And we live in a world that is pressing on us at all sides. We love to define ourselves, love to define ourselves by what we can do. We love to feel, particularly in a Christian church, we love to feel like we can do a little something that sets us a little bit higher and a little bit better, and maybe we've earned a little bit of the grace that God has intended for us. And the reality is, that's not the truth. It's a perversion of our gospel. And it makes us feel better because that's the world we live into and live in. And so this perspective is being pressed in. And so we do need skills to fight against us or to fight against that perspective. In our United States, in our nation, we suffer from an epidemic of anxiety disorder. Sheer knows that. 20% of our population has a diagnosable anxiety disorder. Okay, that's huge. That's one in five. And that's diagnosable. So let's, I wonder how many of us struggle through the day with anxiety and fear and doubt. I don't think God speaks to fear and doubt and anxiety so many times in his word because he doesn't think that that's something that we're going to struggle with. God knows what we struggle with. I'm going to list a few verses. And then I'm going to really just share this first session. I'm going to share with you some of where I've been in my life and some of what led me to a faulty perspective. But... I believe God's word promises us we're going to have trouble. I see it in John, 13, John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. doesn't get much simpler. But take heart. I've overcome the world. 1 Peter 5, 12. Behold, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, 
as though some strange thing was happening to you. James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for one has been approved. Once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Notice our topic is when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The fire is inevitable. We're all going to be walking through it. Our job is to make sure that our perspective is God's perspective. And I believe through his word, he is showing us a template for how we can do that. I want to tell you about where I came from now. Cher did a good job. I have three kids. I have a husband. We've been married for a long time. My kids are very, very fun. They're on the soccer fields. If you think, say a prayer. Nothing happens over on those soccer fields with them today. Um, but I grew up with five brothers and two sisters. If I twitch <laughs> uncontrollably, it's because of that. I should have been a boy because, see, I was mixed. I was the third girl, so I had an older brother who was a stepbrother. And the other seven of us are from the same mother and father. So I had a brother, half-brother, then another brother, then me, and then three more brothers. And my sisters didn't come for 10 and 14 years. So um, any girl was beaten out. I may look like a girl on the outside, but it's, it's, it's a delusion. I, the, any girl that was in me was beaten out at a very young age. Um, I, used to, I used to joke. I didn't play Barbies. I played football because when I walked in my room, my Barbies were hanging from the ceiling, dismembered. <laughs> My Holly Hobby doll got ripped in half. So, yeah, yeah, it was good. In fact, I remember um, my brothers, you know, brothers are kind of mean. <laughs> and I remember my brother used to hit me, and my mom, my mom favored him a little bit. We're going to talk about my mom in a couple minutes. My mom favored him a little bit. And um, I don't think she really knew what to do with girls. I was the only girl. So she figured she'll be fine if I just let her figure it out. And I did. It worked out. It's good. But I would sit awake at night as I was going to sleep trying to think of how I could get my brother back. And you know, how many of you have sons? Okay, so do you remember that season when your son, if somebody would kick him, would grab their legs and throw them over back? Does anybody know that trick? Okay, well, it dawned on me that in this position, he's open. Okay, this was a great epiphany. So I bugged him one day, made him really, really mad, and then I went to kick him. And he put his hands down, I pulled my leg back, and I slapped him across the face as hard as I could and ran to my mom. And, um, and my mom looked at him, and I'd gotten him pretty good, and my hand was on the side of his face. And he's like, Mom! And she looked at him, and it was like she just sort of let things be. And there was a little pecking order, and I had to just prove that I could defend myself and I was no longer going to take the ritualistic beating. And so he let me go. My brother and I, it did change the relationship, by the way. It was a very successful tactic. Um, my brother and I are pretty close, and we're close growing up. And unlike, I grew up in an alcoholic home. My mom was an alcoholic. Um, I remember my brother and I talking about that when I was in fourth grade. Uh, we had gone to an award ceremony at my school and where we were getting awards for doing well in school. And on the way home, you know, mom was acting different again. 
And we got home, and my brother said, you know what, I just studied this in my class. He was a year, he's a year and a half older than me, or a year and four months. And he said, you know, mom's an alcoholic. She has a drinking problem, and which is uncommon in an alcoholic family. You don't usually talk about it, but he and I did. And at that point, we started this cycle of awareness. Now, I had five younger brothers and sisters. And so as my mom's disease progressed, life became very different for all of us. Um, my father worked a lot, wasn't the most faithful of men, and tended to have some anger issues. So the environment that I grew up in was a little bit difficult at times. Um, I don't want you to remember all of this about me because the point of this story is not, wow, look what she overcame. The point of this story is look what God can do in a life. And God has been amazing in what he has taught me. But we have to go to where I've been and what where I was taught me because it teaches a faulty perspective when you grow up in a negative environment. So couldn't really go to my dad because he'd get mad. And he was growing more and more angry about my mom's alcoholism. My mother did go into two treatment programs for 40 days. We did one of those interventions where the guy shows up at our house at 5 o'clock in the morning. We drag her out of bed, and off she goes to a treatment program. She was gone for 40 days both times. And I got a good chance to be a mom. Um, I had five younger brothers and sisters. My brother, first brother is five years younger than me, and then they just sort of stepped down. So when my mom passed away from alcoholism, I was 17 years old. Actually, she died when I was 16. Her funeral was on my 17th birthday, and my sister was three. Um, my mom had been sick for a very long time, and the disease had progressed pretty bad. I remember being at work, because I got a job at 16 as soon as I could, and I remember any time I, I had heard a siren, I would think that's going to my house. I remember my mom being so drunk, she would tell us stories about, I see a light. So I was terrified that my mom might die while I was sitting there. If she was drunk and I knew my dad was going to come home, as soon as I could drive, I'd throw her in my car and we'd drive until about 3 o'clock in the morning until I could sober her up. And we'd go through Jack in the Box, and I'd be digging through my purse to find pennies so that I could get her a cup of coffee. Because if we brought her home and Dad saw her drunk, bad things could happen. And um, so, I grew up, and I went to a Baptist church through all of this. And I went to school through all of this. And anybody who's grown up in an alcoholic home knows that you just don't talk about it. You just don't bring people over. So I'd, we didn't. And I just determined that I loved the Lord. And I determined that I was going to be okay anyway. And so I would walk. And I praise God that he kept me in his hands and that he had us in a really good, solid church where I was learning his word. Because truly, his word is what transformed us. His word says that my word is like a double-edged sword. I'm going to use this verse again. But my word is like a double-edged sword. It pierces through bone and marrow. And it pierced through every lie I built up against who God was for me as we proceed. Um, I did grow up. I got myself through college, um, got myself through graduate school. I remember when I was uh, 18, there's this dynamic. When you grow up in an alcoholic home, there's a dynamic where you just don't know what's normal and what's not normal. Everything you have to go through this process of figuring out is 
this what I should do, and would that be what the normal world does, or is this what I should do, and would that be what the normal world does? And so I remember I, I moved to Glendale to kind of escape the family, but I would drive after I finished my studies back out to Woodland Hills so that I could make sure all my brothers and sisters were home and in their beds because I couldn't sleep if I didn't know they were okay. They were my babies. Uh, my, my sisters and brothers called me mom at that point, which was kind of embarrassing when you're only 17. Um, I was a tough kid. I was a tough kid. I could get through a lot, and I had just decided there's nothing that I won't be able to get to. Get to. So you can see one of my first delusions, self-reliance. Okay? And we're going to talk a little bit about that. So then, I'm, I did pretty good. God protected me all the way through that. And I do believe my position in the family was for my protection. Uh, as I looked at my brothers and sisters, I had a desire to be for them what they were missing out on in their lives. And so God protected me because I should have gone off and married an alcoholic husband, and I should have been a drinker, and I should have married an abusive husband. But none of those things did I do. I had such rigid boundaries around my life, and so much of my life was about caring for my siblings that God really used that as a perfection. So I met my superman, which is my husband, Albert. I'm the hot babe. He's my superman. And... Um, I believed that that's when God was saying, my life's going to get better. I've escaped my childhood. And I went to go meet his family, and I'm going to tell you a really funny story of my in-laws, who, German, prim and proper, tapestries around the house, just perfect, everything looks good, right? Proper. And my dad, after my mom died, met this woman who he's married and they'd been dating for a few years, and she was a Playboy bunny. So, hmm, you can see where this is going. She was odd. Anybody who's met her would say she's odd. I, you know, I love her. She loves the Lord today. Um, I won't say much more than that. She had a house up in Bel Air. Her artwork around the house was odd. Um, nothing you'd want to see, sort of stuff that you went, hmm, do I ever have to look at that again? It was some, there were some parts of it that were a little offensive. She had a lot of Chinese art around, definitely very modern. Uh, she was a producer. She just sort of dabbled in everything. And, yeah, Playboy Bunny pretty, sum, pretty much sums it up. So, my in-laws are coming to meet my parents, whom I have very strategically kept separate. It's a stormy night in California. I kid you not, thunder and lightning, which was pretty much the way my evening was going to go. We get up. There, my fam, my in-laws, and my sister-in-laws are coming up to meet my dad and his girlfriend at her house. First problem. So I get up there early to try to help out, okay? And I walk in, and I look at her, and I'm like, ooh, something's not right. She says, I've had two Valiums. I said, oh. Okay, it's storming. She has a pit bull, by the way. My in-laws do not like dogs. And the pit bull is terrified of the thunder. Okay, so that's good. She's had two Valiums. And my in-laws arrive. And I'm panicked. T 
totally panicked because remember, in my world, I've now decided that this is no longer me and this is me. God has given me this. See, I was going to fit into this perfect world where everything looked good on the outside. And so I'm grappling with this in my little immaturity. And God is colliding these worlds together. They come in. I'm serving the dinner. She drops the chicken on the floor. She says, they won't know, puts it back on. I'm bringing the chicken onto the plates. I took that one, okay? And we're sitting down trying to have dinner. And they're trying to have conversation. And the less conversation, the better. My dad, by the way, I don't get him because he won an award for meritorious verbosity. My dad actually designed parts that are on the respirator. He's an academician. He's terrifying because you just can't quite comprehend what he thinks. You know, he's he's a very successful businessman. And then we've got Valium... Playboy Bunny over here. And so we're sitting at dinner table, and we're trying to have a conversation, and I'm a mess inside, and trying to just divert conversations. And we hear in the background, because she has taken the dog that was freaking out, that the other people hated, and brought it upstairs into the room. And there was artwork upstairs that nobody should ever see. And so I was praying that nobody would go up to see a tour of the house, because that would be bad. And we're just hearing terror upstairs. And she's like, don't worry. It's all fine. Don't mind the noise. And after a while, it gets so loud that she's like, I'm just going to go up and check. And so she does. And all I can hear is every four-letter word being screamed at the top of her lungs. And I'm sitting down at the table. (laughs) This is my family. (sighs) because the dog had torn the door jam off because she was so scared. So that was the introduction of my two worlds. It didn't go as I had planned. I wasn't allowed to keep those worlds separate. And God has shown me through the years that there's no perfect family. Some of us do a better job of covering it up. And in fact, my family's pretty healthy. Over here, we just talk about everything. If there's a problem, it's on the table, we're done. And you know what? We all have different ways of dealing with things. Our job is to know how to live in our own bodies and in our own environments and to do that very, very healthily. So, you can see my perspective in all of these little funny stories. Um, I was a control freak. I learned in my life that I was going to be able to handle it. So I've come up with a list of the obstacles to my believing God. Now, I want you to remember, I loved the Lord. I loved the Lord with everything in me. There was not anything that I wouldn't have done for him at this point. But I created a list of obstacles. Number one, self-sufficiency and pride. I just sort of believed that, you know what, I got to figure it out on my own. God sort of left me hanging over here. How could God have allowed me to grow up in an environment like that? I watched five younger brothers and sisters grow up without a mom at all. I got some good years, but they got nothing. They have no good memories of a mother and no good memories of a father, really. Not even in his choices for a mother for them. Unbelief. Although I would tell you that I would have done anything for the Lord, I didn't really trust him. Not with me. There was a part of me that I held back. I couldn't put together in my mind how I could have gone through that and how God would have left me to have that fear. I knew I had absolutely no ability to control. 
I knew it. And yet I was fully reliant on myself. Here's the problem with self-reliance. We really know who we are. We can't look in a mirror and not know everything about ourselves. We know how we fail. I mean, how many of you do that self-talk? I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Okay? So we know that. I was my only hope. And lack of knowledge. I said that I knew who God was. But I believed more in what life was teaching me than what God's word actually said about God. I trusted more what I could see than what God said about who he was. My life after I got married didn't change. Trials didn't stop. Um, I remember vividly laying in bed one night and I said, okay, Lord, I was, I was a new mom and I said, okay, Lord, you can have everything in my life. You can't have my kids. Everything else I'll give you. My kids are off limits. I love the Lord so much. And I am so grateful that he will not let us remain in faulty perspective. But what he did was allowed my children in a span of three years to go through three emergency surgeries. Okay, two inguinal hernias. They just found lumps on their bodies. And my fear was I'd gotten ripped off in my mind. I didn't get to have a mom growing up. I didn't want to have my kids be taken away from me. One more wound. I just wanted to sort of, I had it in my mind that I could heal myself by watching my kids grow up. Okay, so I created these little delusions and lies in my mind. And I also said, just don't take me from my kids. I can't bear the thought of my kids growing up without a mom. So I, I played these rules with him. You can have everything, but you can't have me. And the last time my daughter went in for surgery, on, in June, when she was three years old, in June, I found a little lump on her face. And by August, that lump had turned into about a grape and had turned black. So we brought her into Children's Hospital, and they said, well, that's a tumor. And she's got about a 50% chance of malignant tumor. And so we need to get it off. But we're in a season where we don't have a lot of anesthesiologists, and so we need to wait a few weeks. And so they took a Sharpie, and they drew a big circle around her face, and they said, if it goes past this circle, call us. We need to operate immediately. So, oh, great. Thank you for that. And by the way, the 50% malignancy, you could have kept that one to yourself. I didn't need to know that. What good is that information? So we went home, and they said, you know what? Here's the other problem with this. And if you guys saw my little daughter, she's just like this little petite little angel with blonde hair and these big blue eyes and three-year-old little spitfire. And uh, he said, you know, the problem with the surgery is this tumor is embedded in her nerves and in her muscle tissue here. So once we get it out, we have to get all of it out. We can't leave any of it in there. And when we scrape it out, we're going to damage those muscle tissues and her face will droop. And we can fix it for the most part, but it'll be about three or four constructive surgeries. And so I'm sitting there as a mom looking at, okay, Lord, I said anything but. I said anything but my kids. 50% malignancy, Lord. Her face is going to droop. Best case scenario. I was a little annoyed. Um, but I got to that surgery. God had been working in my heart on these other two surgeries. And he had said, these are not yours. They're not yours. And you are messed up in who you think I am. You do not understand me. You don't know who I am. And your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. And so we brought her to the Lord and we prayed. As we're getting ready to have her go into surgery, the doctor, the anesthesiologist, the anesthesiologist comes in to me and he says, you know what? 
let's do our little rundown. And we come up with the fact that my daughter has had chronic croup. And she goes, I need to tell you that her chances of coming out of surgery have just been dramatically reduced. I'm like, come on, I've got an hour to surgery. Can you guys keep some of this information to yourself? I don't need to know. It doesn't change any of the outlook. But she goes, you know, her airways are small. If they collapse, we can't bring her out. And we're going to have you come in and sing her to sleep. Um, don't let your voice crack and don't get stressed out. She's probably going to have some... <laughs> She's probably going to have some convulsions. Her eyes are going to roll into the back of the head, and it's going to look like she's dying. But don't crack up your voice, because then she'll go in stressed. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I go in, but the amazing thing, it was the most beautiful thing ever. I'm singing her a VeggieTales song to sleep, because that's what she asked me to sing her. And she goes out, and she does that convulsing thing. But I really had gotten to a place where I had decided that I didn't need to figure out how I would survive. I needed to be able to make sense of everything that I was going to do because I relied on myself. And my hope was based in what I could figure out I would work through. And there was no way I could figure out working through living without my baby girl. But I'd gotten to the place after I laid her to sleep and I walked out and I said, Lord, I don't know how I'll survive. I don't, but you do. And I don't need to figure that out. My job is just to take a step in faith today and trust you. And God was amazing and mighty. He shrunk the tumor off her nerves. The doctor came out and said this was a miracle. None of her nerves got hit. Her face was perfect. All she has is a little scar and there was no malignancy. And they said it should never come back again. But that was a monumental time and just a turn and a shift and it was the moment that my perspective on who God was was different and changed and started me on a journey. I needed to find an excuse for why God left me in a pit. I needed to be able to make sense of it. I needed to have an answer. I needed to have logic and reason. And I needed to know how in my humanness I was going to survive what he had put me up with. But that's not God's way. That's our ways. And, and God talked to me a lot about that. In order for me to wa- work through some of the obstacles God had placed in my path, and those obstacles, remember, were self-sufficiency and pride. I got to figure it out myself. Unbelief, I didn't believe God had my best interests at heart. Fear, I knew that I was not in control, but experience and logic told me that I was my only hope. Quite scary. Lack of knowledge. I had to create a list of justifications to justify my obstacles. And the justifications that I came up with were I believed that if God were really for me, I wouldn't have had to go through all of this. I believed that I was one of those ones intended to have a hard life. Have you ever heard of that or have you ever thought that in your mind? I'm just one of the ones, the unlucky ones, that is doomed to a life of difficulty. And you know what? You know what the crazy thing is? I actually thought that was a good thing. I actually thought that, oh, you know, I'm just designed for suffering, and that's okay because I can give you that, Lord. But it was faulty perspective. It does not include an accurate perspective on who God is. I believed God wasn't really big enough to handle my life. He's got all you covered, but I would just slip through those cracks, okay? And then I believed that um, God was going to use me. The reason 
why I had a hard life was that God was going to use me and build me up and lift me up and I was going to be able to speak of it and I was going to be able to tell people about it and his glory and, and how he's been, you know, got me through all these hard times. But you know what? That perspective wasn't about God at all. Can you see that? Who is that perspective about? That perspective was about me. It was what my needs were. It, I was the biggest person in my life. Pride, self-sufficiency, unbelief, fear. My idol was me. I would have never thought that if somebody had told me that in the very beginning. But that was absolutely the truth. I'm grateful that I grew up in a church that was theologically accurate and embedded in my heart God's words. Because those words clung to me. And God, I love, we have a Savior who promises never, never to let us be snatched from his hands. He's got us in his hands regardless of the trials of life. And so today we're going to be looking at some of those trials and some of what God shows us in his word about people who have overcome obstacles and walked through fire and, and walked through the waters. I pray that you will be able to see things in your walk with God that are obstacles for you trusting him fully with your walk. I love the story of uh, Christ as he is walking through, and he's, a, a man runs up to him, and his son is um, possessed. And this man runs up to him and says, Jesus, 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 I, I need you to help me heal my son. If you can. Your disciples have tried to heal him, and they couldn't. If you can. And Jesus' response to them is, his, if I can. What do you mean, if I can? You have no belief. And I love this man's response. This man's response is perfect, and we need to learn it. I do believe, but forgive me for my unbelief. We are human beings, and our belief is limited. God is the author and perfecter, and he is w doing a work in us every day to create a faith that will stand through all fires and through all tests. But we need to recognize. I think we sometimes come to church and we get this idea that we've got to do it right. We've got to do it right for the next person. We've got to be a good example. You know, we get this good Christian mentality of what that might look like and our responsibility. And do we have responsibility to one another and each other? Absolutely. But our first responsibility is to our Savior. And do we have a proper perspective? And is it okay to lay out before the Lord, Lord, this is all I have. Forgive me for its limits. The God has left us with the Holy Spirit to bridge that gap between what we are able and the limitations of what we are able to do and provide for him. And so I love that story. And I am just praying that God is going to help you identify those things in your life that are justifications, justifications that justify obstacles that keep you from a relationship with him. He and I have had such a fun time preparing this talk for you. And we'll just sit and, as crazy as it sounds, he and I will just be laughing from the belly, or I will anyway. Um, because it's just been so fun to walk through some of these things. And I am praying that each of you will be able to have that closeness with the creator of the universe. He promises us that. He wants us to enjoy that time with him. And there are ways that we can do it. 
Again, we live in a world that loves to define itself by what we can do. Look at my world. The world kept telling me you've got to figure it out. You've got to make your own way. It has to make sense. God's not got you covered. He's not got your back. Look at your life. God couldn't have your back. And yet, God's had my back the whole way. I had a praying grandmother, a grandma who was on her knees. I have five brothers and two sisters, none of whom are alcoholics or addicts. Do you know how against the statistics that is? Okay. 75% of alcoholic addict children marry or become one. And yet, eight of us don't. Seven out of the eight love the Lord and are going to church. And one, the one that's outstanding, his wife and children just started going to church. Okay. God is mighty and powerful. He's there. Nothing we go through changes his godness. <laughs> Nothing. And yet in our mind, we need to remember how big and how amazing God is. I want to do a little thing. Because the gospel message here is the most important part. Our definition of God is so based in our understanding of his gospel. So I need two volunteers. Can I have two people? Two? Come on. All right, you two. I know them. They're from Club 31. Okay. And I need this because I'm going to be interviewing them while I do it. Yeah. This is, I'm doing a little demonstration on the gospel message. It's kind of a little spoof on it or to explain it a little bit better and how we can be misguided in this. And um, so I need you to sit in your chairs. We're going to imagine them on an airplane. This is from Ray Comfort's book, Hell's Best Kept Secret. And so, I have a nice little backpack. I took my kids' backpacks today. This is a parachute. Now, I'm going to tell each of them how they're supposed to wear this parachute. Susan, this is a parachute. It's going to make your flight so much more comfortable. You are going to be enjoying your flight all because... You're wearing this backpack in that comfortable airplane chair. So let's put this on for you. Let's get that on nice. Don't you feel happy and joyful? Don't you love it? Okay. Now, can I ask you a question? Sure. About an hour into the flight, how are you going to be feeling? Pretty uncomfortable. Okay. Now, has what I told you been true? Has this parachute made you more comfortable? Is your ha are you having a better experience in your flight? Uh, no, I'd rather be able to lean back and relax during my flight. So what do you think might happen about halfway through this flight? What are you going to do with that backpack? I'll probably take it off and set it down. Okay, so why don't, why don't you do that? Okay, Linda. I have a parachute for you, and I want you to put it on. And I want you to know, nobody really knows this, but halfway through the flight, we're going down. And this parachute's going to save your life. Don't take it off. Okay? This is what the gospel message is. What are you going to want to do? What are you going to want to do with this parachute? Keep it on. How comfortable are you? Not very. Are you going to take it off for any no. reason? How come? 
what are you going to want to do if you have enough parachutes for the whole airplane? Get them all on. Are you going to want everybody to take a parachute? Yes. How come? Because I want them to be safe as well. Okay. You guys get that? Look at the difference. One is based in some lies and delusions. And we sometimes come to a place in our faith and in our walk and in our churches that we so want people to come into salvation that we sell them a gospel that isn't the truth. Life isn't fun. Life isn't easy. Our life, how many of you, your life got better when you became believers? It did? Better? Did your life get better? Like circumstances of your life get better? different perspective. You're able to deal with it, but did life circumstances change? Okay. How many of you in this room? How many of your lives got better? How many of you would say things in some ways got a little bit harder? How many of you would say relationships with unsaved family members made some tension? How many of you would say it kind of is a tough road sometimes? You know, God's word agrees with us. God's word lets us know that life as a believer will be harder. And in fact, if it's not, we're supposed to evaluate whether we're doing it right. Here, if we sell a message that we know is not true, when it doesn't work out the way we say it's going to work out, which, what have we just decided? Is it going to? Is this promise of peace and the best life ever going to work out for her the way we're saying it's going to? And what's she going to do with this backpack, this parachute, her salvation? It's going to be thrown away. And you know what? How's she going to feel about the church? I tried that. They lied to me. It's not what they said it was going to be. Not what they said it's going to be. But Linda here, is she going to take her backpack off? That backpack is her life. That backpack represents God's gift Her acceptance of it is her eternal life. And you know what? This backpack, if she has more to share, guess what she's going to want to do? She's going to want to go out. She's going to want to make sure everybody she knows has a backpack. We don't want anybody else to die. But we've got to give a message of the truth. Truth is we've blown it. There is nothing that's going to get us in right relationship with God. Nothing. Linda and Susan are no different. You guys can go sit down. Thank you so much. Cher, I told you I was a klutz. (laughs) But I didn't fall. The chair did. I told her I might fall if you keep that too close there. Um, Our salvation is based in the fact that none of us can get there. We all fall short. We all fall short of the glory of God. None of us can work our way there. None of us can serve God enough to get there. We've all fallen short, and God made a way through his son and the blood on the cross so that all of us could walk around with a parachute. And the parachute's not going to be comfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable sometimes. But you know what? It's our salvation. And anybody that learns that message is going to know, I don't want to give this backpack up because you know what? I want to live with God forever. When peace surpasses understanding and inherently denotes that we should not have something that makes sense. What's the peace of the Lord that comes from the Lord? Is it based on circumstance? It's based on who we are in Christ. 
fruits of the Spirit, all those things that are promised to us for that life, those come, they're gifts of the Spirit that come from a life submitted fully to Him. And they're gifts that come with proper perspective. Paul in Philippians speaks of finding the secret of contentment regardless of the circumstance. That's our goal. That our peace is not dependent upon the circumstances and situations of our lives, but that our peace is dependent upon a God who has everything in his hands. How big is our God? I found that God's ways are not always my ways. A good friend tells, once told me that God's will is much easier seen when looked at through a rearview mirror. And I find this in my life. Have you guys ever noticed that? You're walking through God's will and you're like, Lord, I don't know where to go, but I'm going to keep walking. And you get to the other side and you're like, I never would have saw that. It's better. I wouldn't have figured that way out. Has any of you ever done that? So much easier to see what God has intended for us and his hand in our lives when we look back upon it. But how many of you can say, I see it always in front of me? I sure can't. That's not faith walk. When God says, walk with me, it's put one foot in front of the other. Don't worry about where you're going. I got you covered. I have your front and your back. Okay? And I looked through. This was one of the funniest things God and I were walking through. So Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. Romans 11:33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. As I look at scriptures, I find this pattern. God's plans don't often match our solutions. How many of you have figured that out? But you know what? God's word, I went through God's word, and this was so funny. I'm like, oh, you know what? Your word says this. So I thought it would be funny for us to kind of go through and do a rundown of scriptures that illustrate this point. So let's look at Noah. Noah, we'll start here. Adam and Eve, we could start there, but we're going to start with Noah, a flood. It had never rained, ever, in Noah's time. There had been no rain. So Noah is being asked to build a boat because there's going to be a flood and it's going to rain. Doesn't make any sense, but he does it. Abraham, follow me. I'm going to give you a land. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. You're going to have a son named Isaac. Abraham's 100 years old. His wife is 90 years old. Does that make sense? No. Okay, so he gives him in his covenant and in his promise to Abraham, he says, through Isaac, I will establish this covenant with you. And then what does he do? He says, you know what? Bring Isaac up and let's just sacrifice him on the altar. Make sense? Yet, Abraham goes and does it, and his faith is credited to him as righteousness. And that's what we need to remember as we keep going through these lists. Faith. It's our faith that is credited to God as our righteousness. Moses. Okay, we got him basically as a baby going through the Nile and ended up in the prince. That doesn't make sense. Does that make sense to you guys? No. I'll just tell you. God comes to him in a burning bush. Doesn't make sense. Plagues. All these plagues that happen. The Red Sea parting. Okay, Israel had a couple different ways they could have gone as they left Egypt, which God had prophesied about a long time ago. But as they left Egypt, they had a couple ways to go. One was towards the Red Sea. The other one was a different way. They'd avoided that. They get to the Red Sea. They've got Egypt behind them, and they've got a Red Sea in front of them. 
God parts the Red Sea. Did we all see that coming? No, it doesn't make sense. Does it make sense? Does it fit man's logic? No. Joshua, you're going to take Jericho with those huge walls. Walk around it seven times and then blow your horn. Does that make sense? Okay. Are we sort of seeing a, seeing a pattern here? Gideon, 22,000 men is too much. Get rid of them. I want you to defeat the Midianites, but you know what? 22,000 men, you could define that as man's way. So go down. Keep going down. 300 to go against the Midianites and defeat them. Joshua also, let's just extend the whole daytime so you can win the battle. (laughs) Told you you'd win it in this day. I'm just going to extend time so you'd win it. David, smallest, least kingly looking gets chosen. And then he goes against a war hero. Now, I had it explained to me last uh, week a little different at our church. The pastor did a little talk on it, and he said, you know, he had, an, he had a shield bearer in front of him, a shield from his feet all the way to his head. And yet, this war hero who was trained in battle has this little tiny little shepherd boy that defeats him with a sling and a stone. doesn't make sense. Any of you see that coming? No. Esther, made queen as a Jew and becomes spoke, spokesperson for the Jewish people. Hezekiah. Okay, Hezekiah, king that honors God in Israel. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, is coming, and they are basically lording over the Israelites. They have tormented them. They're making them pay. And Hezekiah is just called by the Lord. You're not supposed to stop. You've got to stop paying homage. And he's like, they're going to kill us. And Sennacherib comes, and he's yelling at Hezekiah and riling up Israel against him, saying, your king is going to call all of you to die. What happens? 185,000 men in the troops of the Assyrian army die in their sleep that night. Anybody see that coming? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of a fiery furnace that kills the guard that throw them in. Does that make sense? Daniel survives the lion's den. Mary, virgin birth. Paul persecutes Christian, and he's transitioned into somebody that writes the majority of the New Testament. And then Christ, God himself. How did, how did the world expect Christ to come down? As a king. Conquering king that was going to save him from Roman oppression. But how did he come down? Born in a cave with animals. Served. Didn't even stand up for himself when he was attacked. Didn't rescue himself. And then, what does he do? Dies on a cross. I mean, think about if you were one of those 12 disciples, you're going to what? I think of of him, and, and I love the heart, and I love the manhood of Christ as he just gives us those scriptures that let us understand that he was fully human. When he has lifted up Peter and said, Peter, you on you, I will build the church. And the very next sentence, Peter's telling him, no, 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 you're not going to die. No, no, that can't be right. And what's Christ's response? It's, get away from me, Satan. For what you're saying is not God's, it's man's ways. What you're saying is not from God, it's from man's ways. They could not wrap their minds around a a Savior that was going to die on a cross. And even more so, a Savior that was going to come up from the dead. They didn't see that coming at all. And yet, that was God's plan from the very beginning. Can you see how God's ways, all through Scripture, how many of them make sense? 
How many of them work with what our logic is as human beings? God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so for us, our job is to learn how to trust a creator that doesn't necessarily make sense to us. How to hone our muscles down so that we can go through this walk faithfully. Our goal is to learn God's design for walking through the trials of our lives. I love how Isaiah uses the water and the fire. He does this after he's talked about the Israelites going through the Red Sea and walking through them. And he also proceeds by a hundred years, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I love the story in Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar wants them to bow down to this idol. And he says to them in Daniel 3, What God is there who can deliver you? out of my hands. Now, God had lots of ways that he could use, any way he wanted. He could have kept Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from having to go in the fire at all. But is that the way that he chose? No. And their response is key for us as we look at how we go through our life with the trials that are in front of us. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so... If you're going to throw us in the fire. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire. And he will, he will, listen to this, he will deliver us out of your hand, O King Nebuchadnezzar. Is there faith wavering? He's going to, he's going to deliver us. We don't know what that looks like. But even if he doesn't, even if we don't walk out of that furnace, let it be known to you, O King, that we're not going to bow down. Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Even if. Do we have a God that is an even if God? Do we walk and serve a God who is an even if God? Is our faith an even if faith? God chose to send them through the fire. Deliverance came through the fire, not by avoiding the fire. And the faithful and the elect are those who decided, whatever, Lord, you have for me, I will do, and I will do so faithfully. I don't need to figure out how it's going to happen. I just need to trust that you are able and your ways are perfect. And I don't need to understand it. I don't need to figure it out. I just need to do it. I pray that as we go into this, finish this session, as we go into the next one, that today we will learn a little bit of a different way of approaching a real life. There's nothing that we are going to do. You're not going to leave here with some way to avoid a trial or avoid a fire. They hit us. And you know what? Typically they hit us all at once. Anybody figured that out? But we're not going to falter in it. We don't have to. We have a God that nothing can snatch us from his hands. We have a God that has sealed us. We have a God that has given us a parachute. And the biggest perspective is, what can take away this parachute? Anything? Nothing can take away the love of God. Nothing can take away his salvation from us. Doesn't matter what else happens on this world. He says his grace is sufficient. And so as we go out, and as you guys have a couple minutes to go to the bathroom and have a break, I'm just praying that um, your minds will be starting to think about Where is my hope? What is my biggest stumbling block to listening and hearing and trusting and believing? 
Not what my life needs to look like. No logic, no forward thought. But for today, how can I live in faith? And so we're just going to go on a break. <laughs>